Friends applaud, the comedy is finished. Famous last words of Beethoven. A king should die standing. Famous last words of King Louis XVIII. Oscar Wilde said, This wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. Either it goes or I do. And Joseph Addison, English poet, playwright, and politician, said, See in what peace a Christian can die. Last words speak a lot about a person. What about these famous last words? It is finished. Spoken by Jesus right before he died on the cross. This weekend, we are talking about a God who goes before us and fights for us. God made this promise to go before his people right before they headed into the promised land. But as important as it was for the Israelites to hear those words, God has gone before us in an even more significant way. And today, I would like us to reflect on how the cross is the ultimate statement for God going before us. Theological discussions have been engaged for centuries as to what that means for Jesus to have gone before us in his death. But I would like us to ponder just a very simple and clear statement that summarizes all of that. And it comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says this, God made him who had no sin be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A couple months ago, I was in line at Service Canada to renew my passport. And this line was long, like abnormally long, longer than usual for that place. And I had been waiting for a long time and there was already a huge line behind me. And then it happened. I didn't see it at first because I had glanced down at my phone. But as I looked up, I saw a mother and daughter, a few people in front of me, glancing back and giving the death glare to this lady who was just right in front of me. And when I looked at that lady, I realized she wasn't there before I glanced down at my phone. If you want to feel tension in a room, put a large group of people in a long lineup where they have to pay and then have someone cut in line. Now, this next part didn't happen, but could you imagine if that lady would have turned around, smiled, and said, hey guys, I'm going ahead of you so that I can pay all your fees. Wow, that, that would be amazing, a blessing, especially if your fees were really high. In life, what lies ahead can sometimes be overwhelming, maybe even a little scary, especially when you know it's going to cost you something. What if the cost was going to be everything? The Bible explains that all of us have sinned, and the penalty of sin is costly, so costly, it requires death. What lies ahead does not look promising for humanity. And then Jesus steps in front of us. In fact, he goes before us, 
taking our place so he can pay our cost. It is our sin, our punishment, our cross. Jesus is without sin, spotless, the perfect lamb of God. And yet Paul, the author of Corinthians, explains this radical exchange where Jesus takes our place so he can pay our cost. He takes our punishment. He becomes our substitute so that we might become the righteousness of God, which means we are made right before God, having our sins fully forgiven and given eternal life. We do not have to fear what lies ahead anymore. God goes before us by dying in our place. And he does it completely. He says, it is finished. Not half finished or partly finished or sort of finished, mostly finished. He says, it is finished. The cost that was required for sin to be forgiven was completed at the cross. God made him who had no sin be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So how do we respond to hearing that? Well, we can accept the price he paid and claim it as our own, or we can ignore what he has done and do our own thing. Only one leads to eternal life. And knowing that God has gone before us, dying in our place can be a life-changing truth, not just for the future, but it can be a life-shaping truth for today. For example, if I really believed the truth that Jesus is my substitute, that he has gone before me in this way, would it possibly change the way I see myself? Would it squash the lie that I'm not good enough and replace it with the truth that he loves me? Would it lighten the burden I carry knowing I owe nothing? Would it help me feel more freedom in forgiving people who have wronged me because I have experienced God's forgiveness for myself? Would it allow me to live in peace, knowing that God has already finished it. So the question I want to leave with you is, what difference does it make in your life today, knowing that God has gone before you, dying in your place? I encourage you to ponder that question as we sing our next song. Does the word fight conjure up negative images in your mind? Maybe pictures of a battlefield with guns and other weapons of war? Or that of a fist fight among street gangs? Or maybe even it brings back a memory of a schoolyard brawl that you had as a youngster? At best, probably the tamest image of fight that comes to mind is that of two men in a ring with boxing gloves on. 
Our theme verse in Deuteronomy 1.3 uses the word fight. And Moses puts it in the context of the Lord fighting for his people, reminding them of what he did when he led them out of Egypt. Interestingly enough, in his very next breath, Moses reiterates how God cared for them through the wilderness as a father cares for his child. Now that image puts a different spin on the word fight, like romance in the war zone. God's fight for humanity started long ago when our original parents fell into sin. Genesis 3 records the deceptive work of the serpent and God's curse against him. In verse 15 there, we read what God said to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God's fight for his creation began when his fellowship with them was broken by their willing disobedience. When Moses spoke these words in Deuteronomy, he was referencing a time 40 years earlier when the descendants of Abraham disobeyed him by refusing to enter the land which he had promised to give them. He promised that he would go before them and fight for them, but they refused to believe him and trust his word, which led to their 40 years of wilderness wandering. Friends, God's fight for his chosen people has never been in the imagery of sword or spear against a flesh and blood enemy, for it wasn't another human being that deceived them in the garden. Satan, a fallen spirit being who entered the form of a serpent, tempted Adam and Eve into disobeying God. Therefore, God's fight for his children had to take place in a way that would both defeat Satan and free humans from death, because death was the result of their disobedience. God's way of fighting for us involved the sending of his son as the seed of the woman who walked in perfect obedience to our Father's will. And it was Jesus, the Son of God, who crushed the serpent's head as God had prophetically promised so long ago. Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, enters <clears throat> into this war zone of the world and taking on human form and flesh, he takes up the battle. But the imagery is again one that we would not expect. Our minds might naturally gravitate to that of a conquering prince, born in a palace, destined to be the king of kings and lord of lords. And even though that is Jesus' ultimate destiny, it is not the image that scripture gives us for this battle. In fact, it is quite opposite. Jesus' disciples may have been hoping to follow their conquering Messiah on war horses with swords drawn into the holy city. But instead, it was a donkey's colt with a humble crowd of pilgrims waving palm branches that ushers him into Jerusalem for battle. 
As the Apostle Paul describes the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, he says very clearly that our fight is not against flesh and blood, nor was that the case for God's fight for us. So the normal fight imagery doesn't fit. Sword and spear must be cast aside. Scripture, on the other hand, does give us another picture. And it is that of a lamb. Isaiah 53 says, He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. The Apostle John, in his vision of the revelation of Jesus, said, I looked and I saw a lamb that had been killed. As John continued to watch, he saw all the living creatures gathered before the throne of God, falling down before him in worship. And he heard them sing together, You are worthy, for you were killed, and your blood has ransomed people for God. Friends, the imagery of a sacrificial lamb goes way back to the beginning. God's battle plan for the redemption of his people involved the shedding of blood. And it was for that very purpose that he sent his son into this war zone of the world. John the Baptist proclaimed when he saw Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God's victory was accomplished by Jesus' death on the cross. In Romans 5.8 we read, But God demonstrated his romance for us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle Paul also writes in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, You were dead because of your sins, and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away, Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. He canceled the record that contained the charges against us. He took it and destroyed it by nailing it to Christ's cross. In this way, God disarmed the evil rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross of Christ. Friends, when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished, it was not the cry of defeat, but one of victory. For the God who fights for us won the battle against sin and crushed the serpent's head with Jesus' death on the cross. It is this victory we remember and celebrate today as a church family as we come to the Lord's table together. In this, we honor the one who went before us and won the victory.